Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is Eric Schlein. You're listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast. And today we have on Harris Kupperman, also by the name of Cuppy, as you may know him, uh, through his blog. He is the CIO of Praetorian Capital. Uh, Cuppy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. No, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have you on. You're, you're one of my favorite blogs to read online. So it's, it's appreciate that. Like, uh, honored, actually. Yeah, I'm, I feel like we've talked before in, in Omaha, Nebraska, the, the Berkshire meeting. I, I, sure at some point, but it's nice to like have you on my show and just be able to like sit down, kick back and have like a, a good conversation. So yeah, absolutely. And if we met at Berkshire, honestly, I don't remember it. I meet 200 people each Berkshire and I, I don't I think would I'm so more. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. With the amount of alcohol and the, what is it? 40,000 people that, that come every year. And how many, how many meetings have you been to? Oh, probably about 15 of them. Yeah, okay. But the best part of Berkshire isn't the meeting. I mean, the meeting is whatever. No. It's it's going out like after the meeting's done at about four and staying out to about four in the morning with all your friends and exactly. going to all the private parties. And yeah, you know, it, it's one of these things where like everyone hosts a, a little get together for like two hours and yeah. you just go basically party to party to party and sing all your friends. And so, some of them come from so many different countries. It's just so great. You don't see them in one place any other time of each year. Do you actually attend the actual uh, Q&A at this point? Yeah, I sit down, but I, yeah. I could give the, I, I can answer the questions more or less. Like, you know what they're going to say. You already know. Yeah, it's funny. You start, you almost can tell what they're going to say before, before they say it. Yeah, pretty you know, much. Yeah. There's not very many surprises. No. Now the, listening to Charlie, I know you said when we talked a little bit before the show, you'd been to the, you were at the last Wesco meeting with Charlie. I've been to a Daily Journal meeting. That to me is a little bit more interesting listening to Charlie Munger speak for, for hours and hours. You know, yeah, I bet. Um, yeah, I mean, Charlie is just he's interesting. He really is. And yeah. you can ask him anything. How many people go to the, uh, the Daily Journal meetings now? Maybe a thousand. Wow. When we did the West Coast, it was maybe two, three hundred. And okay. like he stayed there until they ran out of questions. And, you know, it's not like the Berkshire, we have to, you know, bum rush the mic to get a spot. It, Literally, the mic was there, and it was about a three-person wait, and you could ask him anything you wanted. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's still like that, Daily Journal. So, That's great. Yeah, so, so what, are, what are you doing up to these days? What are you, you're, running, you're running Praetorian Capital. You're, you do a bunch of stuff. So what are you up to these days? Well, I'm running my hedge fund. Uh, yeah. it's, been a, it's been a pretty good year, actually, which is, you know, it's been a volatile year, but it's been a very good year. Um, I feel like Q4 is going to be pretty good once we get through the election. Um, you know, I've been doing a decent amount of traveling, uh, the, the borders are closed, so I'm traveling the United States and, uh, you know, I, it, it's kind of funny. I, I live in South beach. I've been here 16 years and okay. I've really never gone North of, uh, Boca effectively. Really? Uh, yeah. I, I knew nothing about my own state. I, I knew, <laughs> you know, places in central Asia better than a hundred miles North of me. And so my wife and I, we just, for the last, I mean, year maybe we've been driving around florida but with covid we just said let's just go all the way as far north as we can get and i mean we made it all the way to virginia basically just going up the seaboard and then kind of cut over into the blue ridge and came back through tennessee and it's a beautiful country i'm i'm kind of surprised that i've never taken the time to see more of america you know i've kind of always been one of those snobs that you know you, you go to europe for your vacation or you know you go to some screwed up country because none of your friends have ever been but right. I don't know. There's some pretty cool places in America too. And I don't think they get the credit that they deserve. So and Blue, I'm, Blue Ridge I'm area is amazing too. Oh, it's so beautiful. Driving there. out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's great. I'm, I'm really happy I did that. Did you, did you make it uh, into West Virginia at all? No, we didn't make it to West Virginia. <laughs> I will it's tell you. These, yeah. Yeah. Driving through West Virginia and stopping in some of these rural towns and listening to the, like the, old school Appalachian accent. You need like a translator with you to figure out what they're saying. <laughs> it's wild. It's like a different, you're like in a different time period. Oh, I can't hear you. Your mic's off. It, you're muted. Hey, there you go. Hear me there now? You yeah. Hear Sorry you about now. that. You no, might find it. <laughs> All right. But it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's great to take one of those trips also where you kind of just set away three weeks and at a few meetings I had to take while I was there and some company visits, but pretty much 
most of the days we just woke up in the morning and said, let's go drive a hundred miles in you know, whatever direction you want on the map and we'll stop at everything along the way. And that's kind of what we did. And yeah, we that's never awesome. made it to West Virginia. Eventually I had to get home. Yeah. <laughs> <Have> a job. <laughs> you actually have work to do. Yeah. I mean, if not for my job, I mean, we probably just cleared all the way to the West coast, but I, I have stuff to do. What, do. what do you spend most of the time doing at your, at your fund? Reading. Um, I cover, so what, what I do, I mean, and I don't know how many of your reader, your, your, your viewers know about me, but, uh, I do two core things. Uh, we do small cap growth. Uh, unfortunately right now, anything with any sort of, uh, revenue growth of any type trades at, you know, earnings multiples that are just insane. So I'm not really doing much of that. Every once in a while, one of these little companies will slip through the cracks, but I'm just not doing that much of that. Cause it's just nothing to do. Uh, and then I'm doing a lot of inflection investing. And, you know, you, you've heard of global uh, macro, but that's really like interest rates and currencies. I'm looking at these smaller uh, sectors uh, that people aren't really following very closely. And I'm waiting for inflections, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, commodity focused or it's uh, some sort of, uh, you know, asymmetric uh, thing, or it's even just an individual company that's going through some sort of dynamic change. But I'm following lots and lots of uh, sectors, probably 200 weird esoteric sectors that no one really thinks about at all. And then, um, you know, in following them means reading, you know, industry publications and watching, you know, presentations, because I guess there's no conferences anymore. But just staying up to date with what's happening in these weird, quirky sectors that have been forgotten by finance. And uh, when I'm not doing, and then, you know, that leads to a couple hundred companies I'm following. And those companies, uh, you know, you just follow in the news and trying to say, you know, this thing is down 90% in the last 10 years. When is it going to get better? Or when's something going to change? I mean, I I always say that the most money in finance is made when something goes from hopelessly fucked to marginally shitty. And, um, you know, something that's down 90%, if it goes, you know, to down 60%, it's a triple. And, you know, that's a pretty good year. (laughs) So, I mean, we're watching these things. We're trying to get the inflections in them. Um, And, you know, I I work with another guy and, you know, I have dozens and dozens of real smart friends. So they're always calling me up, you know, hey, Cuppy, have you looked at this? And what do you think of that? And I'm doing the same. And we're just trying to cover a galaxy of information. And, you know, so at the end of the day, I I spend most of my time kind of sitting right here uh, at our office and just uh, reading. And, you know, I, wh- whether it's like thousands of emails or stuff that people send me or, you know, just stuff on the internet, I'm reading something at all times. Yeah. That's, that's what I do all day. What, are, what would be an example, some examples of some of these very uh, cryptic, esoteric industries you're looking at? Well, I'm really big in home building right now. Okay. Um, you know, it's a sector that's kind of peaked out in 2006. Uh, so it's 15 years of pretty much nothing. It bottomed out in like 2010 or 11. And then it just kind of bounced along the bottom. And uh, it's been a 15 year period with a lot of consolidation, uh, you know, really weak demand and demand's gone parabolic right now. And the home building itself is a pretty awful industry. You know, it's just capital intensive, low returns on capital is it's, you don't want to be in that. But uh, the the guys who are supplying uh, the home builders, you know, the the parts for the homes, you know, windows and doors and pipe fittings and siding and stone facade and all these weird things that you never really think of when you look at a home, all the the, the components, there's been huge consolidation in the industry. And you really have a one and a two in uh, these little verticals, each of them, and there's really no three. And because of that, you have huge pricing power and the toll brothers of the world, you know, they'll basically split their orders between the two players because, you know, they, they'll try to play them off each other a little. But these are actually really good businesses. And I, I mean, I didn't realize how good of a business they were until you look at them and you say, wow, these things were earning 20% returns on tangible capital uh, at the bottom of the cycle. And now we're inflecting up. Maybe they're earning better. And they put a couple turns of leverage on them and they're earning 100% a year. Like, but it's one of these weird things. Like, you'd never think that stone facade is a great business. Right. You no know, exterior cladding. Like, <laughs> like, I never think about these sectors. Yeah. But you start learning about them and, you know, vinyl windows. And you start learning about these sectors and, you know, what's changed and how technology has made it so that, you know, it's all about scale and, you know, it's all about uh, just-in-time inventory for the home builders. So you need to have facilities near where they're 
building. It, it's, it's interesting. And you know, it's a sector I've been following kind of loosely because it's been down a lot for a decade. We've been following this for a long time and we never really pulled the trigger really until this summer. And I mean, a lot of the stocks doubled and tripled already. It's pretty good, honestly. Um, but I think it's a lot more runway. But it, it, that's one of those like quirky, weird sectors. I mean, what we're looking at right now, I think Nat Gas is about to have a, a, another turn. Uh, what, that'll probably. Why is that? Um, just because they're drilling less. Um, you know, we're going to go, we, we've gone from like 95 BCF uh, a day in the U.S. Uh, this time last year, basically. We're in the mid 80s right now. Uh, you know, it bounced around around week to week and there's hurricanes and stuff. But let's say we've dropped already 10 BCF. Uh, part of that is just that there's been a lot less drilling. But part of that also is uh, the byproduct gas that comes from oil shale. Um, you, know, you know, you know, the oil guys, like, if they have a dollar, they'll put it in the ground because their mission in life is to light money on fire. Like, yeah. I don't know why, but they just get excited to destroy capital. Well, it's like, it's like mining. Yeah, but... Mining, yeah, it's it's just like mining. It's, it's a little this, different. They do, they do similar shit. I mean, most of these mining companies are just have pretty horrible well, returns over time. And but, but the mining, and you know, there's mining, which is you know actually operating the mine, and then there's the other part, which is you know gamblers that put holes in the ground hoping to find gold because sure. you can make you know you get to make a hundred times your money. So people will always fund a dream. You know, if, if some guy says something in the geology sounds promising, someone will fund his dream. But, you know, with shale, you know exactly what your economics are going to be to within 5%, 10%. And you know you're lighting money on fire, but you're just going to do it times 100 wells a year. And I just don't understand it. You could build a spreadsheet that, just, that shows capital destruction. Right. Yet, so anyway, that's been happening for a decade. And finally, the money got pulled away from these guys. So they're drilling less. There's a lot less byproduct uh, net gas. Remember, these guys are building, uh, drilling oil wells. They, they want the liquids. And the, the gas side, they don't really care about as much. Uh, so, you know, they're not really fo- focused on the gas price and it's just kind of some extra revenue. And so when the, when they stopped uh, drilling for so much for oil, the gas was just trailing off too. And, you know, in the end, the U S economy, you know, COVID kind of hit, uh, demand a little, but it didn't come off as much as oil came off and it's recovering very fast too. Uh, so, you know, gas demand is good. Supply is down, capital's down. Uh, there's a bunch of LNG uh, uptake expected uh, in the next couple of months. Um, it looks good, I think. And yeah. are you are you looking at equities or or, or um, oh, always equities? Yeah, okay. I mean, I'm not going to trade the futures. I, or, or the bonds? I mean, Do you look at the bonds at all? We've looked at some of the bonds. Um, yeah. You know, but in the end, I'm an equities guy. Um, yeah. You have the most torque there. Um, and a lot of these things, I mean, are bombed a bit. So you can look at the charts and they're all down 95%. And I mean, four months ago, five months ago, everyone thought they were going bankrupt effectively. And the bonds are trading in the twenties and thirties. Now the bonds are fifties to seventies and the stuff I'm looking at. And, uh, the equities kind of had a big bounce and they pulled all the way back. And, you know, we, we own quite a few of these, uh, are you, no are you real- comfortable talking about a, a few of these names? I mean, the one I'm, I guess most excited about is the, the one that's the shittiest. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's Sandridge. Um, okay. I, I own a lot of it. Um, it has no net debt, which is, you know, what allows you to own a lot because you have no risk really. Uh, they're not drilling anymore. Um, they've new CEO came in and said to hell with this. We're lighting money on fire. Now um, Sandridge did, did go bankrupt before, right? And they yes, came out of bankruptcy. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, but the, the new CEO, I think, is actually really sharp. I, I like him. I've talked to him a few times, and he's just cut a ton of costs, cut a ton of people. Um, I think in the end, you know, if you're looking at $3 nat gas and you're looking at $40 oil, this is going to earn something basically around the market cap each year. And, of course, it's trailing off like 20% a year. But, um, you know, you're going to basically get your market cap back uh, in cash this year. If you think uh, nat gas is, you know, mid-high threes, you might make more than the market cap. Um, you know, you, you kind of build a model for what you expect the future production to be that's effectively PDP. And you have a price that's way higher than today's price. And, you know, unlike a lot of these companies where if you're off by a little bit because of the financial leverage, you could be insolvent. Here, if you're off by a little bit on the PDP, you're just off a little bit. Maybe it's only worth five bucks instead of 20 bucks. You know, it's, yeah. it, it's kind of whatever. Uh, I don't think it's worth a buck fifty or a buck seventy-five, wherever it's trading. And 
you know, I've, I've been wrong on it. I've owned it, uh, you know, from higher prices, but I, when it got down to a buck and went below a buck, I, I bought a whole lot more. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a reasonably, it's, it's my largest gas exposure. Um, what, 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 um, what percentage of your uh, portfolio is that? I'd rather not say, okay. but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a top 10 position, put it that way. Okay. Um, do, it's do the you, biggest piece of my gas exposure. Do you stay pretty concentrated generally or how do you, yeah, how do you we, look at that? Uh, we run a very concentrated buck. We're six to 12 uh, positions at a time. And a position might be one company or yeah. it's going to be a basket like what I'm doing right now at NatGas. So I, I have a NatGas basket. It has a couple names in it. Uh, and then I also have some thermal call because it's the most hated sector. And yeah. You can't have anything this hated without uh, eventually having a recovery in uh, share prices. So I have a couple of uh, thermal call plays uh, tossed in with my NatGas because they're all kind of based on the same pricing deck and you know, if, if nat gas is going to, I mean, the strip's already above three, but if uh, basically Wall Street's saying the strip is not going to stay above three because uh, otherwise the equities would be trading better. And I'm saying I think it probably stays there for a bit. But if the strip stays three, uh, my uh, thermal coal names will do a bunch of cash flow and they're just as torqued to the upside. So anyway, it's one big basket of thermal and natty. I love it. love it. Now you're doing a lot of uh, event uh, driven situations too, right? Yeah, we've done a lot more of that than I've ever done in the past. Um, I don't know what happened in uh, March, but ever since March, there's just been a lot more opportunity. Um, I, I feel like there used to be a lot of event-driven funds that must have blown up and they're just not uh, you know, con- contributing capital to close spreads or they're, they're not playing pretty obvious stuff that used to get armed out faster. Um, there's also more volatility in the market. The markets have just gotten more volatile. You know, we went from a 12 vol to a 30 vol. So there's just, you know, inherently going to be more opportunity because of that. But, uh, I I don't have to really worry the the why. I just know that, uh, these strategies that kind of go in cycles, you know, you have a few good years, you'll have a bad year. You you have certain, some strategies do very well, like option writing will do very well one year and, you know, another year, you know, syndicate will do well, but you kind of move around in these strategies, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty much all doing well and they're doing really well right now. And so I've been spending a lot more time on them. Um, and, you know, some of them are, you know, just basic stuff. Like, you know, you have a SPAC and the warrant will trade uh, very wide of intrinsic and you can buy the warrants and sell the common or you can buy the warrant and sell calls against it or buy puts. I mean, how you hedge it is that's up to you. How do you hedge it? But if you find something where there's a $10, $15 spread and a $30 product, uh, you know, there's enough uh, arbitrage room there that you don't have to be all that smart to harvest it. Uh, you know, it, but that's literally like prosaic, easy stuff. Um, you know, you, your risk there is that your borrow gets called away or the spread blows out wider. So you're never going to play any of those too big. Uh, but you know, there's other stuff. Like I wrote about this Dillard's. Uh, it was a situation. Yeah, tell where, us about that. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it, it's it's a quirky, weird thing. You know, I, I, I do a run every week of uh, highest short interest. Uh, it's just... I like looking at those things. They tend to mostly be frauds, <laughs> you know, so you're not going to actually play any of them, but every once in a while something pops up and this Dillard is this quirky, weird thing. Um, the Dillard itself as a business is, uh, it's a department store chain. It's probably dying. Um, but it's like two times last year's cash flow, Uh, and it's not dying that fast. Um, and they've been using their cash flow to buy back stock. Uh, I don't know if it's the right decision for, you know, corporate or not, but that, that's what they're doing. And there's been this short interest that's been pretty constant for a very long time. And um, as they buy back the stock, the, the float keeps getting squeezed. You have this weird situation now where there's 6 million shares short. Uh, there's about 5.5 million in the float once you take away the, the, the pension trust and you take away the uh, management insiders. So there's already, you know, more shares short than there are in the float. And then when you realize that the ETFs, you know, depending on how you add it all up, there are another million, five to two million shares. I mean, you could have as little as three and a half million shares in the float versus six million short, which really should never happen because I don't know how the shorts will ever cover. You know, it sets up for these like infinity squeezes uh, if they choose to cover. What's what got me really interested is I mean, this has been kind of going on for a while. So no, 
you know, you'd have always people say, yeah, Dillard's has high short interest and it'll squeeze and Dillard's would have these $10, $20 squeezes and then it kind of come back. Yeah. What, got, what got me really interested uh, this time is that the borrow costs started spiking, which, which indicated that something was, you know, happening there in stock lending. And so I bought a bunch of shares and I wrote about it and the stock popped a bit and the stock pulled back and I bought a bunch more. Um, and I lend my shares out. I don't really care. I'm happy to earn the borrow fee. I'm not trying to manipulate it, but um, yeah. you know, I, I came into this, my average about $28, $29 and uh, it got all the way to 42 and that's, that's a pretty good return. I think for a, a month or three weeks. No, not, not, not too shabby. <laughs> not too shabby. <laughs> I mean, remember I'm not playing these, any of these too big. I mean, the thing about event driven yeah. that I think people make a mistake with is they play one trade too big and that one doesn't work. And you know, they go, Oh, event driven doesn't work. I'm down this year on it. The whole point is you want to roughly be equisized and you're playing the law of averages and you're just playing the numbers that, you know, every one of these situations I've edge. You know, I don't know if Dillard is going to go up this month or next month or, you know, even when I put it on, it could just sat there at 28. Yeah. Uh, but I knew that if you have a balanced book of a dozen of these sort of situations, you know, some of them are going to work. Some of them are going to go nowhere. Some won't work. But the, the odds are very much in my favor. And, uh, you know, if, if Dillard's goes, what did it make? Uh, I sold mine yesterday at 41. So I made $13 and 28. That's, you know, 45% or something. That's, I mean, you make 45% on something. It, it balances out a lot that don't go anywhere or even go down a little. And, um, but, but anyway, you know, there's a lot of these strategies like short squeeze has done very well this year, actually surprisingly well. Um, you know, all of them done well. And I've just been following a lot of these sort of strategies and I don't know. I, it, it it's, the sort of thing that usually, you know, makes a bit of money. And oftentimes event driven is not so much that you're going to make money on that one uh, discrete event, yeah. but it sets you up for something better. So like, you know, one of the things we track very closely is CEO change, for instance, uh, especially companies that are down a lot. Uh, you know, eventually the board has, says, you know, we're, we're done uh, and they fire the CEO. And so, you know, the press release will say something like, uh, effective immediately, the CEO has been fired. This, you know, the, someone else is stepping in as an interim, and we're going to search for a permanent CEO. And usually the stock drops. And it, it stock, I mean, the stock drops because the board's looked at, like, the Q3 numbers preliminary, and it's a bloodbath, you know? Yeah. So, but, but in reality, the stock should probably be going up because, you know, this guy has ran the company into the ground and he really should have been fired two, three years ago. And now you're having the change come. And if the assets are good and, you know, if the bones of the company are still viable, you know, a new person probably can fix it. And you have this sort of situation where they fire the guy, the stock usually trades down. Eventually they hire the new guy. He takes a big bath. You know, think of like a bed bath, for instance, you know, uh, they, they eventually fired the guy. The new guy took a giant big bath charge. The stock kind of traded down. I mean, it, it dropped in half almost from the day they hired him. Uh, and then, you know, it bounced around for about six months. And the new guy, you know, started to make some progress in turning it around. And, you know, he, he was dealt a bad hand with COVID. But it's starting to show progress. And here we are at 20. But, I mean, the stock, after he big bathed it, it was like $8 or $7. And six months later, you're at 20. And that's kind of the cycle I'm talking about. So, like, you'll watch it uh, event-driven and be like, oh, they just sacked the CEO. You know the big bath's coming. You can short it and make 20%. And, you know, 70 80% of these will work, okay? Yeah. It's, just, it's just a numbers game. But it also sets you up to say, who's this new CEO? What's his plan? Let's call him up and see, you know, how he's thinking about this. Um, and let's watch the data points along the way because if it turns around, it turns around. And so – you know, event driven can lead to a uh, full on investment position. You know, you shouldn't just think of it as, you know, I'm going to grab this 20%, uh, you know, edge or whatever it is and I'm done with it. You know, it's a lot of them, it leads to something more. So anyway, I really like the strategy because whenever you have some sort of dynamic change, you know, you're going to share price movement. And usually with dynamic change, you have dynamic share price movement. And in the end, I'm out there looking to earn very, uh, you know, high returns on my capital. So I want stuff that's uh, moving. Do you ever look at, say, when there's a CEO change and go even fur further than that and screen for, say, CEOs that might be coming in, maybe with a CFO background or an M&A background, you know, with a speculation that, you know, there could be some kind of deal in the works, which is why they're bringing a new guy? Yeah, I mean, you, you can look at it in a... So I've looked at Anything that before. It's kind of, kind of interesting. And that's like, going out back here. to Sandridge, okay? The, yeah, sure. You know, 
Carl Icahn, who controls it, he had this plan to drill out Colorado, uh, which at $80 oil would have made a ton of sense. And at $40 oil, it's suicide. So he had a guy who was drilling and uh, they lit a lot of money on fire because, you know, they guessed wrong on the oil price. Yep. Uh, Carl now is down a lot of money on this investment. They brought in a new guy. Uh, this guy's a cost cutter. He's not a driller. He's actually an eye banker. Uh, his last company, he was hired by the bankruptcy is Jones Energy, which is also another lemon of an asset. But the, the they, they put him in as CEO while it was still in bankruptcy. He took it out of bankruptcy. He cleaned it up. And he sold it. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the guy's background. Um, if you look at his comp package, uh, he's very well incentivized at Sandridge to clean it up, get three good quarters and sell it. Like that's the way his comp package is structured. So all you have to do is read the guy's comp package. Will he do something different with it? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, if there's value to be created, he's going to create value, I think. Yeah. But I mean, his incentive is to sell it for, you know, 75 cents in the dollar of PDP, which, you know, probably gets me like a 10 to $15 share price. So, you know, you just have to look at um, all these things and yeah, you're right. You know, every CEO is different, but if you look at their background, you can figure out what they're trying to do and you know what they're likely to do. Yeah. Right. Now I want to, you, you wrote a thing, uh, this maybe a few days ago on a uh, Joe. Oh uh, yeah. We should talk. Uh, we should talk about that. Cause that, that's yeah, sure. very interesting. And it, that's been one of these value names that God, I don't know. I feel like it's been around since like I'm a kid <laughs> on nowhere, you know, for, for like 10 years, 15 years, something like that. So what's, tell us the deal with, 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 uh, the business and give it and give people a background for those that are not familiar. So, so St. Joe, ticker symbols, J O E, uh, they own 175,000 acres in the Florida panhandle, uh, used to be a timber company. They have exited the timber business though. They do sell some logs. Um, and now, uh, they're developing the property they have. Um, it's been dead money for 15 years. As you said, I don't think anyone ever doubted the value of the land. Um, you know, the, there's been some short sellers who've gone out there and said, Oh, this is worthless swamp land. But I mean, it's not swamp land. It's some of the most beautiful land in the state of Florida. And it's actually the highest land in the state of Florida. Uh, you know, Walton County is the highest point in the state of Florida. Um, so you know, I just want to say before you go on, I, I think a lot of these just in general, these publicly traded businesses that just have a ton of land on the books, a lot of them have gone nowhere for a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, they've gone nowhere. I mean, the stock market's funny in that, uh, you can look at something and be like, I think the nav is north of a hundred. It might even be 200, but you know, it's not going anywhere right now and it's dead money and there's no catalyst. So we're just going to ignore it and we're going to let it trade at 20 cents of the dollar forever. And I mean, a lot of very intelligent people looked at this and came to that conclusion, which is fine, whatever. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're probably right to make that conclusion quite honestly, cause it's gone nowhere. Uh, which changed. And, if you're, and if you're never going to get that money collected, then maybe it should trade at that price is what they would say. Right. I mean, if you're going to go in there and you're going to sell off the acres to someone else, then yeah, you're going to create a lot of value. But sure. if you're not going to sell off the acres, then it's just kind of trapped inside the entity. Um, which changed is that uh, the panhandle has hit uh, critical mass now and it's actually growing very rapidly in terms of the population. Um, you know, you have this weird chicken and egg problem in any uh, area that's sparsely populated, uh, people want to go there, but they're not going to go there if you don't have stuff for them, like schools and hospitals and grocery stores. And, you know, you can't build those sort of amenities unless you have people. Right. So you had this very long running uh, chicken and egg problem. I mean, I mean, Joe actually had to donate land to build an international airport there because you couldn't even get there. You know, <laughs> just, just think of the building blocks of a community. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's really, a real issue in a lot of parts of the country. Yeah. And you need someone who owns enough. Well, you're, you're, uh, you're my cut out again. Can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that. I don't know That's why okay. I was doing that. I don't know. Um, All you, right. need, you need someone who uh, owns enough acres and is uh, committed enough to, uh, make those acres valuable to make it work. And right. you know, Joe's put in the hard time. And now, you know, Walton County and Bay County are two of the fastest growing counties in the United States, uh, admittedly from a slow, you know, small basis, uh, but they're growing really fast. And you, you have demographics on your side here 
migration to Florida is going parabolic, really, as people go to you know, Florida with zero state tax. Uh, but, um, you know, you have people leaving the cities, you have people wanting second homes by the water. Um, you know, the, 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 the land where Joe owns it, it you know, it's called 30A, it's a strip of land along the uh, ocean there. Uh, it, it reminds me a lot of the Hamptons, quite honestly. It reminds me a lot of me being a little kid and going out there and it was just potato farms. There's nothing there. You know, you had some nice homes on the water, but you go basically, uh, what is it? Two, 300 feet inland and there's nothing. And you know, now they built $20 million homes inland. So I think Joe's going to do the same thing. They have been doing the same thing. And if you look at every, every metric from, you know, lot sales to club membership to, uh, you know, hospitality to every metric you want to look at is going parabolic there. They're all growing 30 to 50% a year. And, you know, we're in a world that's addicted to growth stocks. And here you have a company that's growing 30, 50% a year. And uh, no longer is it just, hey, there's a bunch of land doing nothing. It's really growing fast. And uh, I think uh, 2021 is the year where funds from uh, operations finally show up. Uh, property development's a funny thing in that uh, gap accounting kind of bastardizes it. And so what you end up happening is you have, you know, fixed overheads. You have, uh, you know, assets at the asset level that are producing cash flow, but the fixed overheads are hiding them. And every time you build another asset, you have to hire more employees at corporate in order to build the asset. So as you grow, you really don't show a lot of cash flow. Uh, you look at the, you know, cash flow statement. It's kind of a, muddle also because you might show a little cash flow here because you sure about the depreciation but then you also have a ton of capex and it's hard to pull apart what's maintenance what's growth what's you know and then you have you know uh you have, you have lot sales you have hotel development you have multifam there's so many moving pieces it's it's just kind of a jumbled muddle yeah but when you people start looking at this revenue growth that's going to be 30, 50% a year. I think they're going to be able to pull it all apart. Well, they might not pull it all apart in terms of funds from operations, but they're going to be able to look at this and say, this is growing fast. And, uh, you know, it's not like it's tiny. I think they'll do almost 200 million of revenue next year. It's not a small company anymore. So um, if that's growing 30, 50% a year, at some point you hit the critical scale and the market's going to appreciate that Florida is one of the fastest growing states and this is the way to play florida effectively from a macro standpoint and you know you can go asset by asset and figure it all out or you can just big picture it and you know i, I tend to think they'll do you know almost two dollars a share of funds from operations next year and there's a bunch of one now what's one the stock price at right now uh it's a 25 dollars stock right now it was 21 when i wrote about it and you know one of the things i i, I found with this blog i have a, i have a blog called adventures in capitalism and uh, i recommend people sign up uh you know, I'm I, I do too, by the way. <laughs> you do what? I, I say I recommend people sign up too. I uh, appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, I, I write about once a week, just kind of whenever I get around to it. You know, it's a free blog, so you, know, you get what you pay for. But, um, you know, I've I found that when I write about something, if, if, um, if the thesis is good, um, you know, people reach out to me and, you know, the stock sometimes moves a little. If the thesis is, re- you know, if I'm dead on it, it's like uh, – you know, the stock might go up a little. And if I'm wrong, you can say as much as you want, just the stock will go nowhere. It's, yeah. it's I've learned having done this for, you know, 10 years with the blog. And so I put some eyeballs on St. Joe and, you know, I'm surprised actually because this the stock spiked from 21 to 25 in three days. So clearly um, the story resonates with people. And oh, clearly, it was the copy effect. Ah, it's not a copy effect. Uh, <laughs> you know how many times I've told people I think sandwich is cheap? <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of fucking with you. You know, it's funny. Like I've talked about some pretty thinly traded securities on this blog, on this uh, podcast. And there was, there was one, there was one actually where I was like, well, I don't know if I want to talk about this because then it's going to prevent me from buying more. I talk about it on the show and I'll have a guest on the next day. The stock is down 20%. <laughs> so who the hell knows? Who the hell knows? But look, Sandridge is fifty million market cap. Um, yeah. You know, my friends and I own a good chunk of it at this point. It, it never goes up. Uh, yeah. So, you, I mean, the market's telling me that I'm either early or I'm wrong, and you know, early is a form of being wrong, I guess. Um, Maybe. And yeah, but I'm, I'm not making money with it. Right. Yeah. 
So, you know, when you see people, uh, but to be, show, to be fair though, I mean, you see some of these businesses where there can be dead money for a few years and all of a sudden in a week, you know, something happens and you make all your money in a week or two. Yeah. That's usually how it works actually, especially in small cap. Yeah. Um, small caps funny in that, um, you know, when you look at large cap, there's enough people following it that it'll just kind of grind higher. If the thesis is working out. You yeah. might have spikes around earnings, but it'll just grind its way to wherever it's meant to go. Small cap will just sit there, and then you one day you wake up and it's up 50%. And, you know, two days later, there's a press release, and you're like, oh, that's what they, that's what, that's what's that's happening. That's what happened, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> You'll never see that with Coca-Cola. No. I mean, actually, in 2018, uh, I put on 11 total positions. So I run a really concentrated fund. Yeah. I put on 11 total positions over the course of the year. And I had five of them either get acquired uh, or someone go activist or hostile where, you know, someone base or, or someone made uh, unsolicited tender for the company. But uh, I had uh, five of 11 where it was cheap. It was cheap. I went home every day. Ah, it's cheap. Keeps getting cheaper. And one day I'm up 75%. You know, it's just, yeah. you wake up in the morning. It's like, it's been a good day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Exactly. So what do, you, what do you see as the uh, future of Joe if you look, let's say, five years out? I think it's just going to keep grinding higher. You know, I don't think it's going to be any fireworks. It's a steady eddy. I really like the management team, by the way. They're, uh, what, what is their background? I'm not, I'm not actually that familiar. Uh, just property development. Um, but, I mean, the new management team came in about five years ago. Uh, they had a guy in place earlier who was from Disney. And he just spent a fortune. And he tried to build all these you know, grandiose things. And... They didn't sell well. Um, he didn't understand the market very well, and he just spent too much money. And the new guys came in, and they said, let's go hit some singles. And they've been hitting singles, and they just keep tying it all together. And they're, they're doing really well. And I think, you know, you're going to continue to see almost every month another announcement of another project. Every project, I mean, what, what Joe's doing that's, I think, uh, different from a lot of property developers is they're saying, uh, we're going to partner with people. We have the land. We're going to contribute our land into a joint venture. You know, someone else will do the development, which is the risky stuff. Uh, you know, you go over budget, bad things happen. Joe's just putting their money in. They own a percentage of whatever happens. But also, you know, if you look at like Howard Hughes, which is another land play, it's yep. been kind of a disaster. Um, and the reason it's a disaster is um, they're building it all themselves. So they have their cash going out the door. So when your mic, uh, your mic cut off again. Nope, still, still not working. Am I back now? Yeah, you're back now. So the last I'm thing I heard is when, I think when COVID hit was sorry. the last thing you said. That's no, okay. No, okay. I don't know why my microphone's having trouble. Um, sorry about that. Very good. All good. <laughs> I've never said technology was my thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but when COVID uh, Luckily, happened, you're not in IT, so. <laughs> oh, God. If anyone knows a good <laughs> IT guy in South Beach, Florida, I'm ready to hire you. Okay. <laughs> uh, when, when COVID happened, uh, you know, they had cash coming out the door because a half-built building is worthless. This and is Howard use. Yes, yes. Okay. They, they, they had basically these buildings they had to complete with no money coming in. And they did a down round diluted. Oh, your mic cut off again. Why is it doing that? They're, they're, I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> We'll try that one more time. Let me, let me take this from the top. Can you edit this? Yeah, I can edit. I can edit it. Sorry, I don't. It really won't need that much much editing, but it's okay. All right. So, um, you know, the problem with Howard Hughes is that uh, when COVID hit, they had cash going out the door to finish their property developments, and they have no cash coming in because all their revenue stopped. So they did this down round, diluted everyone. The other problem with Howard Hughes is that when you want to build a big building you end up with uh, a lot of very expensive employees sitting at headquarters. You have, you know, architects and designers and permitting guys and quality control guys, but all these people are costing you money. So uh, you have this bloated overhead, uh, yeah. which means that, you know, as you're growing the business, you have this overhead that's growing sometimes even faster than your revenue because this is a lag on the revenue side. You have to build it and lease it up and stabilize it. And it, it's just giant drag. And then the other problem is that if you have these people on payroll, you're kind of forced to continue building stuff, even if the economics of each project don't work. It, doesn't, it creates a bad incentive. Well, you have this sunk cost. So, yeah. you know, what, what, what uh, Joe is doing, they, they have a lot of you know, 
expensive people on payroll, uh, but they're trying to focus on joint ventures where, you know, they're going to partner with someone else and let someone else take on all the headaches and let Joe do the stuff that Joe knows how to do, which is basically manage the, the assets when they're stabilized because, you know, they have the presence uh, in uh, the panhandle that a lot of, you know, property developers don't have. Um, so I think it's a very good partnership for anyone who partners with them. But I also, yeah, and when you, I just think it's a better business model. It's a higher return on capital model. Yeah. But I, what I expect that Joe will do is they'll keep announcing new projects. And you know, I don't expect any one of these projects to really knock your socks off. It's going to be, you know, we're going to build a gas station over here. And, you know, we're going to build a strip mall over there. We're going to build a, you know, 100-unit hotel over here. None of them is ever going to move the needle. Um, I've spoken with a lot of guys who've looked at Joe and, they try to get really granular, you know. We, we think, you know, this hotel is going to be at this cap rate, and you can't do that. I, it, say it's a, I think it's a waste of... Oh, it's a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of like hand grenade stuff. You know, if you're sort of close, you're going to make a lot of money. And, you know, do you think the thing is worth you know, today's quote, or do you think no. the assets are worth many times today's quote? I, I think if, it, if, if, if a thesis would be dependent on a hotel, that doesn't move the needle being developed at a seven or an eight cap. It's probably not a good idea. <laughs> right. Right. And yeah, you, Plus it's a, it's a way you only have so much time in the day. I mean, to be spending, and this has always been my thing. Um, if, if you're spending a thousand hours on this very detailed analysis, when you could spend, five hours on something that's going to be fairly accurate you know it's like time is a resource too and you're going to be wrong on half the shit anyway yeah (laughs) Um, it would be like you know analyzing clorox and then going to every supermarket in the country trying to figure out how much is going to be on the shelf and what shelf it's going to be on it would be a waste of time yeah i mean I, i very much think that you make sure when you enter a position i'm a value investor at heart that um you're coming into it at, you know, 20 cents in the dollar. Like I'm not the sort of guy that buys something at, you know, 20 bucks. I think it's going to 23. You know, that's not who I am. Yeah. You know, you know, Buffett talks has actually talked about, it's very interesting how many people talk about how much they love Warren Buffett, but then that they go off the rails on their own thing. Or, you know, Buffett (laughs) talks about, he's like, if you need to have that level of precision, it's probably not a good idea. But, you know, I think the investment community attracts a lot of people with more of an engineers type, head headset and they want to drill down and and have these like fancy spreadsheets on every little aspect of a business and it's like okay buddy but it's kind of a waste of time but do what you want to do so my epiphany on joe was i went there in 2018 do you know what i mean do you know what i'm saying yeah absolutely okay yeah okay yeah i mean it has to be obvious uh i went there in 2018 uh, um a friend dragged me up there and said you know this is the first annual meeting they've had where they've televised it which oh, is kind of like, you know, the company had been quiet for a very long time. And, you know, it's, it's management finally saying, hey, look, we've made some progress. We're kind of proud of ourselves. We're going to televise the annual meeting. And so, and I called up the CFO and he said, if you come up here, I'll give you a map of what we own. And they'd never released a map of the assets before. So I said, okay, that's interesting. Something's changed at this company now. Yeah. Um, and I like seeing change and that, that's the sort of change you want to see where management's proud of what they've accomplished and they're going to tell the story. Yeah. Um, you know, usually after that leads to like, you know, non-deal road shows and, you know, they have the analyst day and, you know, Joe hasn't done that yet, but they, they've kind of opened up and showed you what they're doing. So I went up there with a friend, uh, we drove, it was like 12 hours or something. Um, we went to the annual meeting, they gave us the map and we start driving around and we're, you know, I'd never been to the Panhandle before. We we go to Thirty uh, Eggs. We're just looking at some. We're just following the the map, and they, they gave us kind of a route to take. And you know, we stop because we see these ginormous homes that are like you, know, you look on like Realtor.com on your iPhone, and they're like you know twenty million each or something. And I'm like, wow, that's that's a lot of money because I didn't expect that in the Panhandle. Yeah. And then I'm saying to myself, that's weird. It's just you know, you have the extra like two, three rows of these. And then there's just like trees as far as I could see. And I look at my map and like, Oh, Joe owns all that. And then we drive like a couple more miles, like uh, really nice homes. And then there's like, you know, uh, a mile of, you know, trees and there's more nice homes and pretty fast. You get to realize that anything that's not developed yet is because Joe owns the land. And then you start looking at, you know, you, you do a back of the envelope of, uh, you know, you put two homes per acre and these are $20 million homes and your build cost in these homes is negligible. You know, it's like 200 bucks a foot or whatever. And, and you, you're kind of like, so, 
you know, the, the acres are like $20 million acres and Joe's has like thousands and thousands of them. And he, you know, you kind of, you know, you, you just kind of backwards engineer into what the things are worth. And you're like, wow, like this zero chance this thing is worth what it's trading for. You know, it's not where, even, the, where did the swampland thesis come from? I don't really it doesn't, know. It doesn't sound like swampland at all. I've had a number of people write to me that it's swampland, but it's, there's, there's actually very, Who's, who is the famous short seller that was shorting this? Um, I was a really was it Einhorn? So I think yeah, Einhorn yeah. was the guy that used to call the swampland. The odd thing, actually, this is I think one of the funniest. So they do have some swampland. They've turned it into our conservation park, and they were able to get a lot of uh, environmental mitigation credits that they were able to use to increase the density of some of their other development assets. And as it turned out, the swampland was the most valuable thing they had. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it's the reason they were able to, uh, like, if you look at, they, they have a, uh, uh, it's called the Bay Walton Sector Plan, which is approved by the government. And it's okay. kind of like a 50-year plan of how to develop their land. And they were able to get uh, pretty dramatic densification, especially in a commercial space, because they put uh, about 50,000 acres into permanent conservation because they were swamp. So, I mean, the swamp actually created the most value. So funny. So, yes, there is some swamp. It is a conservation easement now, and it'll forever be swamp. And it's created the most valuable possible. Yeah. So, it's interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I think you got to be, even if you weren't bullish on Joe, you know, because there's a lot of these other land plays that, you know, are not as interesting. But I think to short a land play is, is, is a little crazy. So I don't know who short this anymore. Uh, you know, Einhorn was right in 2007 or so. You know, it just wasn't growing very fast. Uh, you know, what Joe did was they sold off their oceanfront and they had a couple of years of pretty large uh, revenue and earnings. And yeah. then after that, there was nothing to come. They didn't really have any, you know, uh, plan to build commercial space or, you know, build annuity revenue. They, they just kind of sold pieces off and it, it made no sense what they were doing. And I know was right. And the stock dropped from 80 to like 15. Um, yeah. but I don't know who's still short. There's 6 million shares short and there's like 10 million shares in the float. Maybe. Yeah. It's, it's a little odd. It's, it's very odd actually. Cause I mean, so I went there, uh, I was there three weeks ago and I had some friends come join me and we rented a, you know, a couple million dollar place. And uh, we rented it for two weeks. It was beautiful. And but the, the, a bunch of guys running hedge funds. They came join me and we drove around and I, I'd driven the assets before. But, you know, when, when I always, you know, get a kick out of seeing other people's uh, impressions of assets because, you know, I'm, I'm known to have my own views and everyone's just like, wow, I can't believe this is a $20 stock. Like they just couldn't get their head around it because yeah. it's so obvious that, you know, a hundred a share is the, 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 the lower floor. And depending on how you build your model, you could be in a couple hundred a share. And so I don't know who short this thing, but they obviously have done shitty work. Yeah. <laughs> on that note, <laughs> um, interesting. Any, anything else? Um, you know, I want to wrap it up in a few. Is there any, anything else that's like pressing or really, really interesting that you think is worth talking about that we just haven't covered? We've gone through a lot been almost an hour yeah i i think the i mean the thing that keeps going on my mind right now is degrossing um you know you only make money in this game if you have money at risk and uh it's it's very hard for me to look at a you know portfolio positions and say i, I gotta you know throw one into the volcano but um you know i've just told my i usually run a book that's like uh, 120 gross okay okay uh, it's kind of like my target um and i've been running you know 140 just because it's project zimbabwe which means that you know the fed has your back and stocks will never go down <laughs> so i've just been running more gross and i need to pull that back like i want to uh buy uh october expiration which is in seven days uh, mm-hmm. i want to be under 90 so Interesting. You know, I'm, I'm just selling and selling and i'm just pulling positions off and you know spreads that I had on haven't closed gone, you know, uh, I have options that expire in October. I'm not reloading them for November. Uh, you know, I write a lot of puts just because, uh, it's a good way to get long cheap stocks. Cause you just write a put at a discount to the market and either you get your couple percent premium or you get long something you want to get long anyway at a great price. Um, yeah. I'm not reloading those, but you know, it's just harvesting the book. It's hard. And I don't know what's going to happen at the election. It's, 
very likely that uh, it's a clean election, someone wins, uh, life goes on, we all kind of forget about it. Or it's very likely that it's a hung election and markets hate chaos. And I mean, you can look at a lot of scenarios that are pretty awful. Um, And so you don't have to have money at risk every day of your life. Uh, I I don't feel like I'm risking a lot. I mean, I mean, if the election goes off without a hitch, was the market go up 5% that day? I could just reload or, you know, just sit there in cash and wait for the next set of opportunities. Every day of your life is a new opportunity or, you know, something really awful could happen. And, you know, at least I'm going to sidestep it a bit and have liquidity to buy whatever sectors get, you know, blasted. Um, but I don't think people think enough about just, you know, systematic degrossing because in the end, you know, you, you, especially in the hedge fund world, we're paid to take risk and earn returns. Yeah. And, you know, you're not really paid to degross. And, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, the most likely scenario is nothing bad happens and I was dumb to degross. But yeah. I don't feel like I miss much if I don't. And so, I, anyway, I, I look at... Uh, my book every day. And I say like, what am I going to sell today? Cause I got seven days left and I got to find a thousand bips and I have my core positions. You know, I'm not selling any Joe. Like if Joe went to 50 tomorrow, I wouldn't sell it. Uh, yeah. But you know, you know, I'm not selling my sandwich. I'm not selling my tankers. Like what am I going to sell? And you know, that's, that's hard. So yeah. I don't know. That, that's what I'm thinking about every I day. I feel like selling is always harder than buying. So when it goes up, it's easy to take profits. When you're down on it, it's always easy because you can say, I got it wrong or you get a tax loss and I've had a really good year, so I need some tax losses. But it's really hard when you still believe in the position and yeah. things are sort of going right, but the market hasn't yet paid you for it. You know, your, your catalyst is imminent or maybe it's already happened, but the stock, you know, it's up 10%, but you think it's got more legs. Like those sort of things are the hardest. Yeah, no, for sure. And then I guess the other thing people forget about degrossing is that you can degross by selling or you can degross by selling calls. And I don't think people do that enough either. You know, if you own a stock that, you know, you paid five for it and it's gotten to 10 and, you know, you don't want to pay tax and you don't want to uh, take it off. You really think it's worth 20. If you sold the 12 calls out two months, you get paid a buck. Well, you've just taken, it's like, it's the equivalent of selling 10% of your possession in a way. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of ways to structure uh, degrossing. So, you know, you, you got a lot of, you know, puzzle pieces, use the puzzle pieces, you know? Yeah, totally. Cool. All right. Well, if people want to either get in touch with you or, you know, learn more about what you're up to, where, where should they go? Uh, Adventures in Capitalism, uh, sign up there. Uh, you know, like I said, I have, I have a, a blog and I write whenever I feel passionate about some topic uh, or I see something interesting that I like to you know, share. Uh, my, my, the origination of my blog was I used to have an email chain to about 50 friends and it, it just got unwieldy and I forgot to copy people. So I built a blog and from about 50 people, it's grown to where it is today. Uh, I've never marketed it. It's just people come find it and sign up for it. Uh, in terms of my hedge fund, uh, it's called uh, Praetorian Capital, uh, you know, praycap.com, but uh, you have to be accredited. Um, and otherwise, just email me. I'm easy to get in touch with. <laughs> okay, great. Well, uh, Cuppy, it was great to have you on the show, and you're, you're welcome to come back on any, any time. Hey, thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. All right, take care. You too. All right, bye. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So, in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.